I'm Jen Gerson with The Line, and with me here is Matt Gurney. This is the latest episode of The Line Podcast. We got a lot to talk about today, including um, a disaster in Gaza, which then somehow turned into a disaster for Canadian media and might be turning into a political disaster. We're also going to talk about, and this is an interesting one, we're going to talk about the CBC and its use of language. And then there's a curveball I'm going to throw at Jen. She has no idea what it's going to be about, except that it involves dark clothing. Stick around. That's next. We had our first in-person event in Toronto this week, and we've been telling you all for months that if it went well, we would do more. It went well. And Jen and I have a no bullshit policy here at The Line, so let us just immediately start by saying that we are both a bit of a wreck today. Uh, Combination of booze and a late night, but we have pulled this together. We're actually recording this one earlier than normal. We're recording this on Thursday instead of Friday because I'm out of town this weekend for a family event. Uh, that might also end up being relevant. If horrible, horrible things happen on Friday, we won't know about them yet. But the important thing was our event went well. A huge thank you to our sponsors, Spark Advocacy and Meredith Bowen Cool. Uh, the Maverick Group, uh, Jen uh, Mazzarello, uh, donated a bunch of uh, tickets to allow students to come. Several of our other readers d- did the same, including one family out there, and I'm obviously not going to name them, who weren't able to attend, unfortunately, for health reasons, but I, I, they didn't ask for a refund. They asked us to pass those tickets on to everyone who was there, including, obviously, our sponsors and our supporters, to our fans and our panelists. Thank you. And to everyone else we will do more. We, we, we're we going to have to kind of do an after action report on this one, learn some lessons, uh, do some things better. But the first inaugural event was good enough that we are confident saying we don't have any schedule yet. We make no promises, but we will do more. And Jen, you were saying to me, what is our, I think you should be the one to announce this. What is the next logical stop for us on our event tour? Oh, we have to, we have to come to Calgary now. You dragged me all the way out to Toronto and I, I am feeling the effects of a very early morning flight. Thank you very much. I on three and a half hours of sleep. So um, I'm a disaster right now. Also, <laughs> my kids, you know, okay, we counted how many times my kids asked for me. So I was gone for two nights, fly late, one day there, did the event, came back early the next morning. Guess how many times my kids asked about me in that period of time? It's either going to be really high or shockingly low. And I don't know which way you're going on this. Okay. My husband counted 63 okay. times. Which was impressive because you have to remember that the kids were sleeping and going to school during this period. Well, everybody loves Jen Gerson, as we saw at her event last night, and that applies extremely uh, so in your own household. So, yes, next time, I promise I will come to Calgary. And, guys, like we we don't want to promise anything yet because we got to kind of figure out the logistics of this. But we are hoping uh, our next event will actually be part of a round of events. We're hoping to hit uh, some sites in Western Canada. You're going to have to give us a few months. We're going to have to plan this. We're going to have to get the logistics sorted out. But I, I either our next event will be in Calgary or a Calgary event will be part of our next swing. I don't know the, the sequence they'll be in, but Calgary and Alberta fans of the line, we are coming. You you can't you can't keep us out. I already live here. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, and 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 it's just, they they do let me into the province. It's been a few years since I was there, not before COVID, but I've been uh, there many times. It's always beautiful. I was saying saying to Jen, 
Jen, we were joking about how you you had lived in Toronto in your career. And every time you come back, you're like, you know, kind of really thinking through that different period of your life. Toronto was like a city that had like a formative impact on you. Mm-hmm. I have none of that baggage in Calgary. <laughs> I show up, I eat bison burgers and I look at mountains. Yeah. Every time I go to Toronto, I have to unpack 10 years worth of long buried emotional damage. <laughs> <laughs> I get bison and a and the clean, crisp mountain air. And then I... Uh, Flames tickets are cheaper than leaf tickets. So also, can I just say how much fun we had? We had so much fun, it and it fun. was it was it, it it was exactly what I was hoping for. And that was it's a little bit of discussion, some canapes and some drinks. But really, what it was was the opportunity to meet people who are fans of the line and who are we are fans of. And it was like a big, giant, fun family reunion without any of the dysfunction. We were um, so the event. This is just so people know who couldn't make it. The event was on the fourth floor of the Royal Canadian Military Institute, and Jen and I, about half an hour before the event started, we were on the third floor in one of the the lounges there, getting our introductory remarks prepared, uh, going over a couple of logistics, and one of the things we were talking about is what if no one shows up? Oh yeah, like it was just just butterflies, right? It was our yep. first event. Yep. And then uh, Richard, God bless you if you're listening now, walks into the lounge and he's half an hour early. And I had already had one friend message me from a bar down the street, having gotten there an hour early. And I started to think that we were probably going to be okay. That if people are showing up that early, we're probably going to be okay. We packed the room, standing room only. So it was great. It was was such a nice facility. RCMI uh, uh, hosted the facility for us and I've never been in there. And it's just very classy. I, I actually, for the first time, felt like a proper adult journalist and entrepreneur walking into this very professional looking event. I was like, oh, wow, who, who is this for? Hey, when, <laughs> it's kind when, of fun. When I take a girl out for an evening, I believe in taking her to a place with cannons in front, machine guns in the lounge and rifles on the wall. That's how yeah, we'll, I like to party. We'll, we'll try to top it off for the Calgary event. Maybe we'll hold it. So one of our line subscribers says we should hold it at an ax throwing <laughs> facility, which I actually think might be really fun. Um, well, we'll you know. let's d- details to come. Let's go with that. Yeah. Jen, as much fun as it was to talk about our, our event, uh, and it was, um, we had a really sad story this week and our podcast, uh, last week was the first time again, just because of, of the sequence of when we filmed our, our two podcasts ago, we had missed the Gaza, uh, the, the Hamas attack on Israel. It just hadn't happened yet. And mm-hmm. our last podcast, we talked a lot about the atrocities that we had seen this week we have been waiting to see what happens and we're still waiting uh by the time because we're filming this one early by the time this goes out we might have a ground invasion underway i don't know but even if we don't one of the probably the big story this week alongside the israelis still finding bodies um confirming who is dead and who is missing alongside uh obvious uh, tremendous loss of life within gaza from the airstrikes and artillery strikes, we've had um, skirmishes on Israel's northern border. And when the, we're filming this on Thursday, we don't have a lot of information about this. But the United States Navy today got into the fight in some capacity. The USS Kearney uh, shooting down missiles that were either targeting the ship or targeting Israel. It's not clear at this time which is true. Let's just put this bluntly. This is a dynamic, dangerous situation. And by the time you're listening to this podcast, God only knows what the hell will have happened. The big story this week, and I'm going to use extremely careful language here, was an explosion at a medical facility in Gaza, at a hospital. This was claimed almost immediately by the uh, the Gazan Health Authority to have been an Israeli airstrike that killed many hundreds of people. That 
does not seem to be what's happening. I'm, I'm using the most careful language I can. The uh, analysis by independent experts, including some that are not normally kindly disposed to Israel, statements by the Israeli government, statements by the United States government, and even on Thursday, a comment from the Prime Minister of Canada, all seem to be aligning that what seems to have happened was that a Palestinian rocket that was being fired at Israel misfired or had some kind of malfunction, and it landed in the parking lot outside this hospital where there appear to have been people in a nearby yard, and it exploded. I am not a munitions expert, but I am a reasonably informed observer on this stuff. When it happened and I saw the video, my immediate reaction was that that was probably not an Israeli airstrike. And I'm not mm. saying this to absolve Israel of any responsibility. It just didn't look like a JDAM, a joint attack munition to me. Uh, it would be less of a fireball and more ground level damage. But mm -hmm. I waited. I did the responsible thing. I kind of waited to see what would happen. A lot of people didn't, Jen. A lot of people, a lot of people didn't. ran with Hamas, like Hamas, the Gaza Health Authority. Hamas! Hamas is the government of Gaza. They came out and said, hey, the Israelis just bombed a hospital. And so many people fell for it. And this is not just about a Twitter gotcha. A diplomatic summit between the president of the United States and Arab leaders collapsed. There were riots across the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. An ancient synagogue in Tunisia was burned. There were protests across cities in Europe and North America. And a synagogue in Berlin was firebombed uh, with Molotov cocktails. All because of a report that now seems to have been not only inaccurate, but probably propaganda. Hmm. And also, I mean, just to make this a little bit more local, a number of papers and their newsletters and in their own commentary um made the mistake of 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 repeating Hamas's claim about this rocket verbatim we saw a number of liberals in particular make tweets um condemning the the, the hospital bombing I believe Jagmeet Singh did, did as well although I believe you were watching that one a little bit more carefully than I was I think Ma some of the language was careful so Okay. What the prime minister said, the prime minister was asked about an Israeli airstrike on a hospital. And he was like, this is awful. We condemn it. Hospitals must not be targeted. But what he never said was Israel's bombing of. So it was like he left himself this tiniest little sliver. And the government has basically been hanging by that. Most, I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but they've been hanging by that most slender of reeds ever since. So, I mean, from your perspective, and I mean, I've been in the air a lot this week, so I haven't been yep. fine-grainedly watching this stuff. So from your perspective, does it seem like the media organizations and the polit politicians here in Canada have responsibly and effectively walked back those inflammatory claims? Have they, no. have they, oh. No. Okay. What I think happened, and let me, let me tell you what I think happened, and then I'll tell what you happened? what I think happened what next. Happened. Okay. I think a lot of people who are not normally kindly disposed towards Israel were so horrified by the brutality of the Hamas attack that as human beings, they were forced to take Israel's side. And I know that's a simplification, but what Hamas did in southern Israel, the pogrom they had, the rapes, the murders, the torture, and we're seeing more and more evidence of it all the time is the, me the medical examiners, Jen, in Israel have been doing live streamed updates they're having a hard time separating some of the remains because they put them in piles and burn them. And we're not convinced they were dead when they did that. So they're having a hell of a time identifying all the victims. Mm -hmm. 
that was so appalling and outrageous that even people who don't like Israel, don't like Netanyahu, don't like Israeli policy, they were forced sort of in the interest of humanity to go like, yeah, that's bullshit. We can't do that. But I think a lot of them are feel uncomfortable with the fact that they have taken what is in their minds a pro-Israel position. And something like this happens, and it is an opportunity for a lot of people to run right back to that more comfortable ground of condemning Israeli aggression and warmongering and war crimes. No one, well, no, no, I shouldn't say no one, because some people did, but a lot of people who should know better raced to accept the version of it. And I, the best explanation I can think of is because they don't like feeling like they're on Israel's side and they were grateful for a chance to fall back into the same old condemnation of Israel war crimes. So I have two observations on two separate words. One is the word justification. And the other is the word power. And the reason why the word justification came up for me this week is that um, I occasionally keep track of the, the comment section underneath some of our podcasts and things like that. And I noticed that sort of out of the blue last week underneath the comment section of our of our podcast, um, I noticed a lot of people, commentators who I'd never seen before, people who were far more lefty, they started accusing us of, um, quote unquote, justifying the Israeli attack in Gaza. And I thought that was really weird because firstly, there was a repetition of this word in many of these comments, justification, justification. And secondly, I thought it was odd because I don't think that any fair-minded person could listen to our podcast last week and think that that was what we were doing. Like that wasn't, it wasn't quite justification. It's not our job to justify anything. Like that's, that's not our, our role here. Um, and then I, I, so I commented and that was stupid of me because then I realized what was actually going on. That never, is some take, never read the comments and never, never join the, com the comments. Well, you know, I, I like to, I like to engage with people as people, right? That's my first mistake. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, I, I realized what had happened and that is some tanky somewhere had put up the, the flag saying Matt and Jen are justifying the deaths of Gazan civilians and people who had never listened to our podcast and never will dutifully piled into the comments section and started accusing us of this. Um, and then I realized, oh, I was trying to engage with these people and, and, and clarify our position was a giant waste of time because it's, it's people are engaging in this kind of virtual warfare because it makes them feel alive, not because they're actually you know, trying to have a conversation. Yeah, this is their D-Day. Yeah, exactly. So I started like really looking into where the word justification was being used and how it was being used. And it was really interesting to me because the, the logic seems to be that the second that Israel kills any civilians for any reason, that can't be justified. And if, you're, if Israel has killed any civilians for any reason, um, that somehow becomes a, a, a moral equalizer between Hamas and Israel. Mm -hmm. They're now both baddies. And so now we can we can hide ourselves into this this position of, of both sides and hide into this position of sort of false moral equivalency between these two agencies, right? Um, and of course, the problem with that logic is that if your metric for justification is literally no dead civilians, then you have deprived Israel of any kind of moral right to defend itself militarily at all. That's effectively what you've done. I don't think it's a good faith argument. It, it's about stripping Israel of the moral right to to go after Hamas and Gaza in the Gaza Strip, because we all know that anytime there is a military 
incursion of any kind, there's going to be collateral damage. There are going to be civilian deaths. That's why rules of war exist. That's why laws against atrocities exist. These are about trying to set some parameters on military. It doesn't eliminate it. It hopefully constrains. Yeah, it's it hopefully constrains. Yeah. It doesn't totally eliminate civilian death. And also, I found it a weird thing to say that, you know, the second that Israel incidentally kills a civilian, it's now equally baddy. It's now an equal, equally bad to Hamas, which is, by the way, I I, I can't say this enough, a, a, a genocidal death cult whose purpose is to kill all the Jews and establish an Islamic theocratic state in the, in the land of Israel, um, and to try to equivocate with that and say that that's the same thing as beheading babies and engaging in mass atrocities against civilians and, 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 and elderly people. I don't see those two things as being the same. I think that there is a fundamental moral distinction to be drawn between, you know, basically doing your best to eliminate civilian casualties, but accidentally killing people in the midst of an otherwise proportionate illegal military strike and fighters going into a hospital and saying, Jewish baby got to be beheaded. I don't think that these are, that these are equivalent morally. Um, and I, I just, I think that playing the game of justification, playing this idea that the second any civilian gets killed, they're both equally bad, essentially leads you to this zero-sum argument where Israel has no right to engage militarily at all, which is the purpose of the argument. It's 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 a bad faith argument. And the second sort of meditation I had, had, had was on the word power. And I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in journalism here, because we're trained to speak truth to power. It's kind of like a, a written into the, the DNA of our profession, right? Our job is to speak truth to power. And when you're looking at this scenario, it's very easy to say that Israel is the is the actor with the power. It's the state. It's got the F-16s and the tanks. It's and the got artillery. the F-16s. It's got the tanks. It's got the military. It's got the the social and political capital. It's got the finances. And it's easy to see Hamas as the underdogs. And if you have written to the code of your your kind of vocational DNA that, you know, our job is to uh, afflict the afflicted and to speak truth to power, it's real easy to see who the good guys and who the bad guys are here. So the more powerful people are the, are the baddies. Like, like those are the people who deserve our condemnation and, and extra criticism. I think that that's a very simplistic version of power, but it, it really gratifies a certain deep-seated urge to be iconoclastic and to imagine yourself as, as an independent thinker and to rub against the grain, to stick up for the underdog here and and say, you know, the more powerful of these two agencies is 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 in the has the has is in the wrong, right? Um, and I think that that habit, um, particularly among journalists generally, has created a kind of internal bias structure where it becomes really easy to do your best to forget and minimize dead beheaded babies and really easy to automatically assume that the flaming hospital must be the result of the Goliath in the room, must be the result of, of, of the more powerful entity and must be condemned. Um, so yeah, the, the, the hospital gave people the opportunity to try and equivocate between these two entities. And that's why I think a lot of people seized upon it. Um, and this, of course, doesn't justify any military overreach that Israel may go on to do. Like for all we know, yeah, but tomorrow they're going to drop a, a tear. I hope they don't, but tomorrow they might do something truly atrocious that absolutely is worthy of our condemnation. I'm not, I'm not 
reserving the right to, to condemn them at this time. But I think that that's the underlying psychology about why people were were, were quick to judgment on this particular um, explosion and why they've been very slow to retract those statements. I want to say um, that you, you spoke really well there, which is remarkable considering you've only slept about three hours. Yeah, in the three last hours. Two days. Um, maybe I should. Maybe I should. You know damage my brain cells exactly. more maybe i need to like ice pick lobotomize myself it make me more articulate and maybe also improve my elocution and ability to speak slowly oh for the record i would oppose that uh, <laughs> just to be i want to i want to go on the record on that but I, I actually as you were talking there i was actually taking notes and 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 youtube viewers will have seen me looking off to the corner there i was jotting down notes about jen was saying because i i thought you raised a lot of great points and i, I want to respond to some of them here what i would say is sort of my my overall response to this and i know our listeners are probably tired of me harping on that column i wrote about our expectations are a problem but i don't think the the western population today understands war and i am not a combat mm. veteran i've never been in a war and i've never been a victim of war but i you were like, wearing a camo t-shirt though so well it's funny i remember i got someone called me out once for like talking about military matters while like wearing a camo t-shirt and it was like oh are you larping which you means you live are, action what I'm actually doing when I'm wearing this camo, what it tells you is that I need to do laundry. And since I'm going to be out of town this weekend, I'm doing the laundry today. So I'm mm -hmm. down to my tattered and raggy camo t-shirt. Thank you very much. But I also think the point I wanted to make is that even though I'm not a combat veteran or I've never been a victim of war, like I've read a book, <laughs> like I, I, I have some understanding of history and I think what you were talking about justification and power, and I think, I think you're right. Absolutely. Agree with everything you said, but I think that kind of a worldview only exists in the complete ignorance of what even a completely successful proportional and restrained military campaign looks like in an urban environment. It looks like a fucking catastrophe. Yes. It is. And it is. And I, again, I don't this, know if this goes the, back to the whole idea that essentially a lot of these people who are who are warriors on this on these on this topic online are, are just rehashing old dorm room debates. It's all abstract. It's all sanitized. Right. People like you said, what was the word they were using that we were justifying? Work? Justifying. Justifying. So justifying. I've had I've had some emails and some some feedback from others who are taking the attitude that um that we are cheerleading that this that we are or that I in particular am eager for this and excited no one who believes that about me will believe what I'm about to say, but the people who either are positively inclined or hopefully neutrally inclined towards me might, I'm actually terrified about what we're all about to see. And I'm terrified about it as a human being who is going to have to see awful stuff because it's my job to look at this. And I, I don't think I have the professional or moral duty to look away or ability to look away, but I'm also terrified because I think it might drive some of us completely insane. And mm -hmm. I don't I think what's going to come is going to push some people to be crazy. And, you know, I mentioned already in Berlin, um, Molotov cocktails being thrown at a synagogue in Chicago. And this happened after our podcast last week. What looks like a hate motivated attack on a Muslim family resulted in the murder of a six year old boy by someone who had gone around the bend re reading about the coverage of Israel. And I'm thinking to myself, we're what, 12 fucking days into this? Yeah. What is it going to be like when, when it's day 35 and the Israeli ground campaign has begun and artillery is softening up targets for preparatory uh, in preparation of ground invasion here? 
the idea that you and I are looking forward to this or justifying it is insane. I'm dreading it because I think it might drive Trust us me, nuts. We, we, we've seen one or two uh, conflicts in the Middle East and we can say this like journalists, this isn't novel anymore. It's not, this isn't, it's not a romantic conflict. I've interviewed and spoken privately with uh, U.S. Army combat veterans from the Mosul and Fallujah campaigns. Gaza will be worse. Yeah. Fallujah, they were able to get a lot of the civilians out. In Gaza, there's nowhere to go because the Jordanians and the Egyptians don't want them. And, right. and also, there's something that is just absolutely under-talked about. And I've spent a couple of years living in the Middle East. The Arab states have they hate not... Palestinians. Well, they love funding them. Uh, to an extent. They, 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 they have not lived up to their own human rights and refugee obligations. Whenever there's a refugee crisis, the expectation is always on the West to take more refugees, while very wealthy states, for example, the Gulf states, um, and, and perfectly capable... Saudis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians. Saudis, the Egyptians, do nothing. And the They're onus afraid is always of the on... They're afraid well, of them. The, the onus is always on the West to take to take people in, but the Arab states always get a pass for their own comparative lack of uh, compassion and organization, logistical capacity. Certainly not the lack of wealth. Many of these states absolutely have the wealth capacity to take these people in, um, and I think that that is something that 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 the Muslim world really ought to contend with. I mean, this gets me into an interesting aside, but. Um, one of the big formative pillars of any democratic state is the ability to create a civil society mm -hmm. and a civil society that can form organically and freely. Mm -hmm. um, this is why whenever a fascist society takes up or a totalitarian society takes up- They have to co-opt or destroy all the institutions. They have to co-opt or destroy civil society, right? Yeah, and, if, and any institutions they destroy, they replace. And there's one thing that I did notice when I was living in the Middle East, and that is the very few Muslim countries- have anything equivalent to what we understand to be a civil society. It's not there. Um, yeah, there's a Red Cross, but the Red Cross is something that a lot of the oil money will then fund in a very abstract way. It's not like if there's a major catastrophe in your neighborhood in Abu Dhabi, that you're going to have your your neighbors are going to come out to help you in, in in the same way. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. And I, and I remember having this experience where I covered a, a fire in a building when I was living in Abu Dhabi. Um, and a lot of the people in the building were living in just horrific, overcrowded living conditions. And when the fire broke out, there was no, like there was no um, fire suppression. There was no alarm. There were no alarms. And the way that these buildings had been built uh, maximized the flow of fire into the, the middle of the building. Cause of course there were no building codes. There were like, this stuff just didn't, didn't exist there in the same way. There wasn't that the, the, the accumulated history of civil society and 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 democratic action that created these things. Right? They just weren't there. And this this building, its entire lobby had essentially been used as garbage that nobody cleaned up. Right? And this was in a nicer area of Abu Dhabi. Like a, this was close to where I was living. And when this fire broke out, of course, people were living like five, six, seven to a room, and some of them like jumped out of their their balconies like they literally jumped four five six stories and they were they'd broken their legs and when the fire was over they had been treated many of them with like very rudimentary like gauze and an advil kind of stuff and uh 
they had nowhere else to go. So a lot of them went back to their burnt out buildings or their partially burnt out building and were holed up in like the trash ridden rooms that were in the bottom of these buildings. And I just remember thinking to myself, and I was in my twenties at the time, like, where's the red cross? Like, where's the community? Where, where, why aren't people helping out? Like I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that there was no support system. And it was because I, and this was when I had my aha moment it, because there was no civil society. There isn't, it doesn't exist. There, there well, is been no. prevented from forming. A lot, like a lot of these yeah. governments, which are, have at least an authoritarian bent. I mean, like, just to be clear, I, I, want, I want to protect you preemptively for any accusations of, of, of bigotry here. It's not that Arabs or Muslims would oh, be God, capable no, no, no. of forming these this... organizations. Because in no. Canada, we've got plenty of them. The Muslim Absolutely. community in Canada is an incredible charity. Hugely work. incredible and active. No, this is this is just this a mile isn't... from my house. There's a wonderful Muslim charity that has made tangible differences in my community. But those kinds of civil society organs that you're talking about are thre- uh, threats to state power. That's right, and and especially when your state power is is um... Uh, operates in a in a kind of autocratic way with with a kind of a monarchy system or or a shake system right like like it, you can't have alternative um factions of your family acquire social and state power mm-hmm. in these ways so it, it becomes it's really delicate it has nothing no it has absolutely nothing to do with really even culture certainly nothing to do with ethnicity nothing like that it has to do with how these states are actually fundamentally structured and as a result you know charity for these states means giving a billion dollars of oil money to some abstract red cross that doesn't do work locally and yeah. is always done elsewhere you know like it, it it the the internal structures that would be required to create um a way in for palestinians to thrive within some of these wealthier arab states like they would require infrastructure it requires like what we saw here in canada churches reaching out sponsoring people that's those traditions those those structures don't really exist there um and it's something that i think really uh prevents a lot of the muslim world from reaching its full potential you have Um, you have experience in the middle east that i don't i've i've mm -hmm. only have limited um travel experience there but what you're describing to me is very similar to places the world where i have traveled and i have Mm -hmm. a friend and family ties to post-soviet eastern europe where once Mm -hmm. the state collapsed there weren't a lot of institutions below the state and, and nobody and nobody ever thought, had to build like, them well and because also you create a, a system of dependency with your citizenship like the yeah. relationship between power yep. and your citizens are, is 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 different it's a dependency system it's not the idea that you would just create a society to do something it it, it almost doesn't occur to people because to well not all people of course it does occur to some but it, it, you, a lot of these states whether you're talking about soviet states or whether or not you're talking about sort of the gulf states they turn their citizens into dependencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so the citizen is just expecting the state to take care of them. Like it's just, you're going to give us a good job. You're going to, you're going to pay for our, our wedding. You're going to pay for our house. You're going to take care of us. And essentially it keeps almost a lot of citizens in the states of a state of perpetual sort of infantilization where they don't, they don't become empowered to take ownership over their communities and to create, structures in their communities that allow them to make real improvements in the lives of the people around them. Um, and, and it's, and it's a political problem and it's a particularly a political problem in, in oil dependent states. Um, but it, it, it just really hampers the ability of some of these, some of these um, nations to, to create more resilient political cultures is what I would say. So anyway, you, you yeah, just, it, it's a really interesting problem. So I, I'm using a bit of a weird anecdote to try and illustrate this. 
but it's a really interesting problem and and it's a conversation that i think is things start to heat up in gaza oh, oh, so you're a gonna little, have to wait you're gonna a little redhead go by there yeah she wants pasta we're gonna have to ask dad okay? mm, everybody wants pasta everybody wants pasta um one of the things that this risks creating is a real refugee crisis for Palestinians. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity for, for Canadians and, and a lot of the Western world to step up and like, we need to obviously be taking in way more refugees than we do. This is an opportunity for us to do so. And, you know, if you're pro-Palestinian, if you're pro-Palestinian Palestinian cause, you know, let's work locally within our own civil society to, to make sure that the Palestinians who are displaced as a result of this war can build a life or can can at least escape that violence for a time in the same way that like local groups did this for the Ukrainians at the beginning of the war, right? We had a big push to bring in Ukrainians into Canada. This is a way that we can um, uh, affect change in a positive and healthy way, as opposed to say like, you know, bombing some synagogue. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, my barber, I mean, a, a bald guy barber, I mean, I, I kind of have the worst of both worlds where I'm bald, but what hair I have at the fringe grows incredibly quickly. So I got to go get it buzzed down every couple of weeks and get the beard cleaned up and all that stuff. My local barber is Syrian. And when the Syrian refugees were being brought into the country early in the, in the Trudeau mandate, uh, he sponsored a ton of people, first family, cousins, got them in. And then he just kept sponsoring people. And there was mm -hmm. a civil society here using... I think they were Syrian Christians. I'm not sure about that, but there were churches and 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 state groups here. I don't know enough about the Palestinian territories to know how much civil society exists there. I haven't spent enough time there. No, I I, I can't speak to to, I'm not, and I'm not trying to speak to what. No, no, you know, no, no, you're speaking with the Gulf states mainly. Yeah. Um, I would be because, I would of, actually... because they've got the wealth to actually affect some 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 positive change here, whereas a lot yeah. of say Egypt or Jordan doesn't have the same kind of wealth capacity, right? I'm just gonna I'm gonna make a note of that. Um. That's interesting. I, I'm going to see if I can find someone who can speak to the state of civil society in, in the Palestinian territory. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't. One one thing I would mention as well, it was kind of one of the notes I jotted down. Um, one of the things that happened early in COVID, very early, like in the first couple of chaotic months, is I was talking with Canadian officials uh, in the government and also in the private sector about our resiliency, our ability to handle major economic shocks for critical supply chains, for medications, agricultural inputs, energy supplies, medical supplies. And one of the conversations that came up, and I have to be very careful about this because these were all private conversations, but one of the things that I had realized early in the pandemic was that it might not be possible to operate everything safely. And if our risk tolerance was at effectively zero, the power grid might turn off like <laughs> like like there was we did not have ppe we did not have vaccines some people were going to have to work in dangerous environments so that civilization didn't collapse and that mm -hmm. there were smart ways to do that and i remember talking with some canadian officials about this and i was talking very openly about some of the the very critical things that we were scrambling to try and figure out how do we keep these things running with like the bare minimum of staff do we isolate them do, like, do we have workers to run a power plant living together in a dorm where the shifts are separated from each other so that they can operate in shifts? They were really interesting conversations. And in general, we we did figure this stuff out very well. One of the things, though, that I remember saying to a bureaucrat, and I, I, I didn't say it to be callous, but I basically said, we're going to have to figure out what our acceptable loss rate is to operate critical institutions and critical utilities in particular. And the person recoiled in horror from my blase use of the term acceptable loss. Hmm. 
And it was like, whoa, there is no such thing as an acceptable loss. And that's a, a nice moral nice statement. Yeah, but in reality. But our expectations are a problem. Yeah. Like, like that was the mindset of a senior Canadian official. And like, again, I can't, can't get into the details of this, but the thing that we were talking about here was not like a frill. It was not like a nice to have, you know, it'd be better if this thing worked. What I was talking about is if it had failed, a lot of Canadians would have died. And the idea that we might have to put people into a dangerous situation so that a greater number of people would continue to benefit from a functioning critical part of our national infrastructure had not occurred to them. And I think they hmm. did get there and I think they did figure it out, but this is where Star Trek has really helped you. You know, you can go back to Spock, the needs of the many away the, the needs of the few. Yeah. Needs of the few away the oh yes, yes. Um the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And that was a foreign concept because we have not had to think in these terms in this country for so yeah. long. And the yeah. reason I bring this up is because I, we talked about this on the podcast last week, just the sense that once Israel begins its ground offensive, there's going to be a threshold. A lot of people are going to be hit where it's going to be like X number of civilians have died. And therefore this enterprise, no pun intended, has become invalid, immoral, illegal. Yeah. Whereas my perspective is I would like to know what Israel's military objective is. And then we can discuss what is the minimum number of civilians who will be killed while pursuing that objective. And there's always going to be gray areas there. We can, we can disagree about what that limit is. We can look at each individual strike and go, yeah, you know what? I think they, I think that was not proportional. I think the damage to civilian life or infrastructure exceeded the military value of that target. But there could at least be an understanding that whatever Israel's defense strategy is going to be will necessitate some level of civilian loss. Well, this but is I just, don't this... know if as a society, we I don't think North Americans think in those terms. No, they don't. And, and they really struggle with this idea. But if you have you if you say that literally any civilian loss, if the number is more is not if the number of acceptable civilian loss is zero for you then you have ruled out the capacity of Israel to actually respond yep. in any kind of military fashion. All right. Um, we got some other, yeah, you're right. That's just it. Like, the it, only thing I would mention on this, and we can close the loop on uh, the the Hamas and Israel stuff for this week, is... Um, on a more cheerful note. Well, yeah. I have... So earlier this week, I, I mentioned this already. The, uh, the Prime Minister, you mentioned Mr. Singh of the NDP... Uh, Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, there have been a lot of comments that are either outright accusing Israel of having done this airstrike or have been extremely careful in the language so that the prime minister can get a soundbite that sounds good for the Muslim community, but technically, he'll say, doesn't implicate Israel. What I am wondering, and I don't have an answer for it, but you and I spoke last week about how there had been broad-based consensus among major Canadian federal policies uh, parties about our national response on this issue. I'm wondering if that's starting to fray. And like I said well, before- I mean, Let's be honest, we can't really expect broad-based consensus on any major or controversial issue to maintain itself for more than, what, two weeks? Days. That, that would be that would be, that would would be be a shock. Like I said um, before, I'm, what happens when we're on day 35? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the CBC and terrorism. CBC. Yeah, all right. Okay, so this Fun. is something we, we didn't talk about last week, but- uh, in the midst of the beginning of, of of the whole incident, the situation in Israel, 
uh, CBC circulated around a memo that just reminded people to follow their journalism standards and practice on the use of the word terrorism mm-hmm. um, and to be extremely cautious in its use and to remind them to essentially don't, essentially they said, don't call Hamas a terrorist group. I mean, effectively, if you read between the lines, that was what it said. Um, that is a very politicized term. We want to be cautious about this. We don't want our readers to think that we're taking sides in this conflict, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this, of course, leaked and caused an extraordinary amount of backlash and outrage. Um, you know, bluntly, if if baby beheading doesn't qualify as terrorism in the minds of CBC, like what the hell would? Like where would the where would the bar possibly be met there? So this led to a really interesting response from Brody Fenlin, who I believe is the editor in chief of CBC, where he talks about so. their logic and the I forget his exact it. title, but effect, yeah, I think he's the senior guy at CBC News. Yeah, well, essentially, the, he he wrote a piece about this, and there was a lot of um, hand waving and, and and throat clearing before he really gets to the point, which is effectively that the CBC wants to be seen as a neutral organization, and as a result, their own standards and practices suggest that it's not really for a news reporter to call something or someone terrorism or a terrorist. You can report on someone else calling it terrorism or terrorist. So if the prime minister says Hamas is a terrorist group and you say Hamas is a terrorist group said Justin Trudeau, that's fine. But the word terrorism is is, is effectively too loaded to be used in news, in news um, or straight reporting by a journalist. Now, of course, if it's if it's an opinion piece, different conversation, obviously, um, and it can be used with context is kind of the, the 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 logic here, which is if you're paraphrasing someone else, just just add context so that the reader knows that it's not us, the CBC, calling this person a terrorist. Make sure they know that it's someone else calling the person a terrorist. So I'd like to put up, take a bit of a con when I know it'll be a controversial point among my readers, and that is. I think that is a defensible position for a journalistic operation like the CBC to take. I think it's similar to stuff that we've seen from AFP. It's similar to a position we've taken from BBC. I think it is a defensible, personally, it's not my, it wouldn't be my choice. Yeah, I disagree why. with it, but I, I can disagree make an argument with it. For it. But, but I can say, yes, if, if that is your consistent view, policy on the use of the word terrorism, I think it's defensible. Oh, I know what you just did there. You used the C word consistency is key Mm. and when you and i were kind of discussing this a few days ago it wasn't that hard for us to find a couple of examples in the very recent archives from the cbc where they do use the word terrorist or terrorism or or, terrorism it's not quoted there is no context provided Mm-hmm. They just saw, and usually, actually, the ones I saw most consistently used by was uh, ISIL, so the Islamic State. Um, the one I found, and you're right, this, like, you and I spent about 30 seconds on the Google yeah, finding we didn't, this. We didn't really we can still do that, because C18 hasn't kicked in yet. Yeah. Um, the one I found was I had a, I had a, the, that son of a bitch in London who murdered that, um, oh, yeah, that the, Muslim family. Muslim uh, family Feltman, yeah. I think his name Feltman, was. Feltman, yeah, that's um, right. That so, that's sick fuck. Um, the 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 T word was used in those articles describing the trial and the incident. And the funny thing is, not, the the T word wasn't inappropriate in either case. It was correct in both cases. Completely accurate. Completely accurate. So I would just note that I I don't personally agree with the idea that all news outlets should not be using the word terrorism because bluntly, I don't think it's that hard to understand terrorism and when that use of that word is appropriate. I really don't. Like, 
look here, I'm going to go back to the, the British Terrorism Act, which I have up on my screen from 2006. Terrorism refers to the use and threat of action designed to inf influence the government or to intimidate the public or a section of the public and made for the purpose of advancing a political, religious, or ideological cause. That's so functionally the same as the Canadian definition. Yeah, essentially, so, yeah, so the words are a little different, but yeah, same the, meaning. The Canadian definition is a little bit more legally but essentially what it is, it's the use of violence for a political, ideological, or religious aim. Sure. That's what it is. It's not yeah, to actually influence policy or society. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the use of illegal or illegitimate violence as distinguished from uh, organized, armed military, organized armed military conflict. Exactly. I don't actually think it's that hard to spot this. No. There, you know, it's not difficult for us to label Hamas a terrorist organization. It's not difficult Canada for has. us. We have. We've literally yeah. labeled it. It's not hard for us to label ISIL a terrorist organization. It's not hard for us to label uh, Brevik or what was it, that guy, that fucked up dude who killed all the kids in Scandinavia. Oh, there, that was Brevik. Yeah, that, that was, was Brevik. Yeah. He's a terrorist. Like, this is not complicated. Timothy McVeigh was a terrorist. McVeigh was a terrorist. Like, yeah. the, there are examples of, 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 there are examples that are so obviously over the line that it, it this really isn't controversial controversial or difficult. And Hamas is one of these examples. Okay. They're terrorist or it's a terrorist organization. It's an explicitly terrorist organization. You said it um, so well last week when you're like, oh what? All of a sudden, I don't remember I don't remember if it was on the podcast or it was what we were talking before, but you're like, oh what? Moral clarity is a bad thing now. Yeah. Oh, moral clarity is all of a sudden both yeah, exactly. Both sidesism is coming right back in fashion. Uh -huh. Um the, pro the problem that I think people run into is that, firstly, there's a knee-jerk reaction to assume that terrorist only gets used to, or applied to Muslims. That's not true, and it should not be true. Lots of white people are terrorists. Thank you. Um, lots of neo-Nazis and, and, and radical far-right groups are terrorists. You know, like, I don't know. It's, 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 it's an equal opportunity word. Or, would, um, or if they committed violent acts, would be doing terrorism. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. Um, so, so let's just put that aside. I think that the people run into problems with terrorism. There is, there are gray areas. And I think that when terrorism is a gray area to use his language is when you're dealing with a lone wolf who might just be crazy. Mm -hmm. So maybe a person is just mentally unstable and is latched on to some, some very shallow sort of political or religious affiliation, but it's clear that they're a psychopath or they're just not well, or they're not thinking straight or they've been manipulated. Then you, I think you run into the gray zone area because it becomes a question of whether or not that person literally has the capacity to have intent. Does that person have the capacity to have a, a terroristic intent? Because if it's not, if the violence isn't specifically tied to an ideological end, like a clear ideological end, I think that that if you're crazy, you can't really be a terrorist because you, you can't really form intent, right? The intent is, is is part of a crucial part of the definition here. So there are areas where there is a gray line. But one area where there isn't a gray line in the use of the word is when we're talking about an organized group of terrorists. <laughs> you know, like like I, I I I don't I don't think Hamas is anywhere close to this gray line. So while I can respect that the CBC's policy in theory, I have issues with its use, with its use of that policy in practice i don't think it's consistent and i also just happen to personally disagree with their approach to the word terrorism I, I just don't think it's in most cases that difficult to label what a terrorist act is sometimes it is difficult sometimes there is going to be a debate but most cases it really isn't that hard we've been we've been this podcast is already getting up there we got a lot to talk about this week which is funny because when we started before we started rolling we're like we're both tired let's do a quick type podcast yeah, and here we are let me make one point that I think is exactly speaks to the, your talk about the gray area. 
one of the things is how it seems to me that in some contexts the threshold for terrorism uh, using the term is being lowered where mm. mass shootings um uh, acts of civic uh, disobedience um sabotage of energy projects or uh, environmental activism there's been a willingness on left and right to lower the threshold of when we'll say oh that's terrorism and it's not it's not just violence it's, or even even when it is, I just think it's interesting. Like I'll look no, at things and I'll mean, think to I mean, myself, like, "That's more uh, of a crime than terrorism." Yeah, exactly. Like, mass shooting isn't terrorism unless it's, unless we have evidence that it is ideologically motivated. This a mass shooting is just a mass shooting. America has five of them every week. They're not all yeah. terrorism. Also, I think paradoxically, eco terrorism, people who are blowing up property, the the definition of terrorism doesn't just apply to violence against um, people. It can also apply to violence against property. So yeah. if you're blowing up pipelines because you you disagree with TMX, that is a form of eco-terrorism. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's interesting how we've had these arguments in recent years on the low level. But mm -hmm. we have, but meanwhile, sort of like we're arguing whether or not, and I'm not trying to be flippant about this, but I remember like some white guy shot up a church, like a black church in the States. Mm -hmm. And immediately was, is this a, like, there's a debate in the newsroom. I was at the Post at the time. Is this a mass shooting or is this terrorism and i was the guy in the room who was being the asshole and i was being told by some colleagues about moral clarity moral clarity and i said to him guys i know how this looks i 100 know how this looks and if this is what it looks like i will agree it's terrorism but can we wait two hours because oh. for all we know this white dude was a contractor who got stiffed on a bill in the basement renovations let's make sure it's not a more run-of-the-mill mundane crime before we start talking about terrorism here I, and two hours later, I was satisfied that it was terrorism. Yeah. But the like to your point, like we're debating it at a lower level and we're not applying the label to fucking Hamas. To, to, to where it is a clear example. And this this is the other issue that I have with the moral clarity stuff. It's like it's not about moral clarity. It's about the clarity of the literal evidence that we have at our disposal. Yeah. It's not that I lack the ability to make a moral judgment when I have the evidence. Yep. The problem is that you're demanding I make a judgment before I have the evidence in, in hand. Yeah. The, you know, once I have the evidence in hand, I'm, I've got no problem labeling something terrorism. I think that's appropriate. But, you know, you, the, where you should be hesitant is is where you, is when it's not clear what the motivation is or you lack the evidence. In the case of Hamas, it's really clear what the motivation is and we don't lack evidence. This one's a no-brainer. Um, so anyway, I, that was just my position. But then this all then say, got into a major political debate when, of course, the um, CPC wanted to call the CBC to account in Parliament for its JSP. For its, a lot of consonants, Jen. Yeah, sorry. The CPC wanted to call the CBC <laughs> into the into the to talk about its JSP. Yeah. Um, they they wanted to bring it for Parliament to to talk about this. And this is another. This starts to open a whole other quagmire because I mean, to what extent do we want Parliament? litigating or chastising or even being involved in the journalism standards and practice of the CBC. That's a whole interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. And then there's another whole interesting side conversation about, I do remember a few months ago, everybody was losing their minds because um, Twitter, you know, labeled the CBC as like a, as a, as a publicly funded news agency. And everybody was like, no, you're trying to make them sound like state TV. They're totally independent from parliament. And they're like, yeah, but mm -hmm. They, they are kind of independent from parliament, but just so that we're clear, their leaders are appointed by the government. And, you know, let's be blunt. You're never fully independent if you don't cut your own check. This is something subscribe that we, to the line subscribe today. Subscribe to the line. On that note, subscribe to the line today. Because you're, you, you know. Like, you, subscribe, sign up, share our stuff, send us money. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the CBC 
is reliant on taxpayer funds and the CBC's yeah. values have to be broadly in line with, with where values. the Canadian taxpayers yep. who pay their checks are. So can the CBC be brought up to Parliament for a discussion about its JSP? I don't even know. Like, I don't actually know whether or not they can. They're gonna, I think it can be, see. whether or not I, I, I trust the people be. doing it. Well, that's another conversation entirely. So anyway, the, this this whole conversation branches out into three different totally interesting side notes and stuff that's now worth worth paying attention to because it's going to be heavily politicized. And of course, this is this is being done by a conservative party that wants to just defund the CBC outright. So, uh, man, it's it's an interesting set of problems now, right? Two weeks ago, we made a defense of an expanded, if reformed, role for the CBC. The last few weeks. And I understand some of the problems they're facing. I legit do. Any CBC friends don't feel picked on, guys, because I get it. But I think the last few weeks have given a possible future Prime Minister Polyev some ammunition that he will use to defund it. Mm-hmm. I don't think they have. I don't think they have done themselves a lot of favors over the last few weeks. And I understand that probably some of these were Kobayashi Maru's no-win scenarios. Yeah. But I don't think they all were. All right. I want to say one thing to you, dark clothing. No, you have no idea clothing. what I'm talking about. Do no you? idea at all. So you were up in the air this week, fl- uh, flying back and forth. It was a Twitter story and I don't want to, it's not super serious. We don't need to spend a t- ton of time on this. If I was less tired and if I was cruising on more than three hours sleep, because I had the same night you did last night, I didn't have to get on a plane this morning, but I had to get up and, and start the day. It was either Surrey or Richmond. I don't remember which. It was an RCMP detachment in British Columbia that put out on social media a PSA. See, now I'm doing condoms. Well, well, one of those is a vowel. A public service announcement about pedestrian safety. And one of the things... Oh, yeah, okay. I did see this a little bit. It was... One of the things is don't wear dark clothing because drivers won't be able to see you. And there was like a video of a distracted driver who hits a pedestrian or almost hits a pedestrian who's wearing very dark clothing. And people freaked out about it. And I, I agree the video was tone deaf. I watched it. I thought to myself, well, there was no one. They did you. How many times have you and I talked about the importance of having a red team member in the group whose job mm-hmm. it is to go, actually, is this a bad idea? Mm-hmm. No one was in the loop when this video was made of going, how are the pedestrian safety uh, cultists going to respond to this? They responded predictably and they responded badly. And they have a point. There, mm-hmm. it, there was a hint in the video of, hey, pedestrians, Work harder to prevent yourself from being killed by distracted drivers. And I get it. And it was tone deaf and it was offensive, but it was still fucking true. I almost killed a guy a few years ago in Toronto and I was driving safely, totally safely. was not looking at my phone. I was doing the speed limit and I was in my clearly demarcated lane. And some idiot steps out between two cars dressed head to toe in black. And it was really hard to see them. I didn't hit them. Because that person saw me coming and stepped back. We have interesting debates. And I remember years ago, remember Slut Walk? Yes. Do you remember how Slut Walk started? Yes. We have a really hard time in our society. For, for listeners who don't, Slut Walk was a series of marches organized across Canada. And I think eventually in the United States too. Because a cop, if I remember, it was a Toronto cop. So don't been, dress like sluts. Don't dress like, like had been giving a group of college or university age women uh, talk on like sexual violence prevention. And he had said, don't dress like sluts. 
and he got roasted for it, rightly so. Slut walk really? happened where women would go on parades, scantily dressed. It was a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think it was actually in service of a, of, a, of a correct and broader. I actually point. thought it was great. I thought slut walk, slut walk was fantastic. It, yeah, it was, I I admired it. Also, I think you enjoyed it. Um, no comment. What I will <laughs> say is that you shouldn't wear all black when you're out at night in a city. And I am absolutely going to teach my daughter about consent and her rights and autonomy over her own body and all those things. But I'm also going to teach her about not putting herself into dangerous situations. I'm going to try and teach her in a way that you have every right to live a life free of violence and intimidation and assault. But in the there are scenarios where your risks will be higher. And here's how you and your friends can be safer by avoiding them. And this idea that we should not be teaching anyone, whether or not it's a young woman on a night on the town or someone taking a walk before the sun comes up, some level of defensive self-awareness. This goes back to the abstract sense of sense of abstract morality that is completely divorced from reality. Reality. Right. So, I mean, like, look, 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 I'm willing to take on Hamas and Israel as a topic, but Jesus, let's not piss off the pedestrian safety people like how many how many angry comments can we handle below in our anyway um we're hitting yes, all the high points right. here we should you're also right. talk about climate change now 100 percent, you're correct morally ethically i should be able to walk in the middle of the fucking street in the middle of the night wearing all black and a driver should still not hit me morally you're correct and in the real world that's not going to prevent me from having my head smashed across the pavement being right isn't going to save your life yeah I don't know if I have anything to add for that. It just reminded me, and I know it doesn't seem like anything that we're talking about early in the podcast, but except it kind of does, because it all touches into the fact that we are living our lives in the abstract and not in reality. Because we've had nice, comfortable, cozy lives, and that's allowed us to develop a whole set of ethics and morality that's just detached from blood and violence and gore and brains on sidewalks. I, I don't deserve to have my home broken into. I don't deserve to suffer a home invasion. I don't uh, deserve to be threatened or intimidated in any way inside my own four walls. But if someone were to suggest to me as a reasonable security precaution that I should lock my doors at night, I would not be offended. And I do lock my doors at night and I put the security system on. You know why? Because I have a right to live a life of peace in my own home, but the world don't give a shit about my rights. And I can do things that will make me and my family safer like hopefully doing a good job teaching not only my daughter but my son as well about how to keep themselves safe especially as they move out into the world about not wearing camouflage and you know walking through the forest and hunting season or wearing all dark when i take a pre-dawn walk with so the maybe dog. not wearing camouflage when we're talking about war in israel but you know that's just you just you just took that risk right on i gotta i gotta get laundry done it's yeah, yeah i'm out fine. of town this week and i need shirts yeah it's uh, uh everybody's got excuses man everybody's got, excuses, got excuses until the until the until the car hits them on the side of the head um that's that's all i got i just want like this is we have to stop living in the abstract and it would be better if we lived in reality yeah, but we're not going to be. Oh, we anyway, um, I think that's it. I think I got to go eat some food and maybe yeah. have a nap. Yep, I'm going to go put my reflective vest on and go walk the dog. All right, well, good luck. I, I don't actually have hit. a reflective vest. I just want to be clear about that. Yeah, you're going to wear black, aren't you? My current jacket is a light gray. Uh, it's probably fine then. Yeah, I think so. All right. 
Uh, well, once more, everybody, everyone who came out for our event, all of our sponsors, all of our supporters, it was great to see you in Toronto. And Jen and I look forward to seeing you likely next. Not promising this for sure, because we might make another stop or two first. But my gut feeling, Jen, is our next stop will be where? Calgary. Calgary. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. <laughs>